Welcome to Scene Change, a podcast by the National Federation of the Blind's Performing Arts Division. All about equality, opportunity, accessibility, and the arts. Here, you'll learn adaptive techniques from performers in the know. We are changing what it means to be blind, one stage at a time. Thank you for joining us today. Well, welcome everyone to this wonderful membership call for the National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division. We are so delighted you are here. My name is Caitlin McIntyre and I'm the president of the Performing Arts Division. And I'm not going to be our moderator this evening. I will turn you over to her wonderfully capable hands in a moment. But I wanted to make a few announcements. And the first of which is that this episode or this episode, this membership call will be part of an episode of our Scene Change podcast. So um, for those of you who have not found out about our podcast yet, please feel free to find us on your favorite podcatcher, um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, YouTube. We post them there as well. It is called Scene Change, S-C-E-N-E Change. Topics ranging from aerial silks to comedy to ballet to uh, strings as a blind person, all, all great topics. So um, that will be this will be part of one of those episodes. So later on, um, the, the format will be such that our wonderful moderator, Julia, will be uh, asking our panelists some questions for the first portion. And then we will open it up for questions or comments, discussion. Um, also, for those of you who don't know about too much about the Performing Arts Division, I did want to just share a couple ways you can connect with us and you can ask me about these more at the end too, but I know we always get a few folks who are new to our division. So we'd love for you to join us. We do these membership calls about every other month. We have a quarterly spotlight newsletter for our members that talks about uh, what we're up to, some interesting articles about perform performing arts and blindness. Uh, we do events, especially at the National Federation of the Blind Convention, as well as sometimes partnering with states throughout the year. We have a singing telegram fundraiser that we do over the holidays and over Valentine's Day. So, um, and, and we're just a, a place that we want performers to connect. We want to be a resource, to be a, a vehicle for connection for blind performers of all abilities, all genres, all arts, um, to, to be a place to connect with one another because it's so helpful to have those uh, other other humans that you can rely on and ask questions of and not feel alone in this world. So um, a few ways you can connect with us. Our website is nfb-pad.org. You can find lots of information on there. We have a Facebook page and group, National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division. Um, we have a Twitter, nfb underscore pad. And if you forget any of this or you have questions or comments about our division, you can always email us at nfbpad at gmail.com. So I feel free to ask me to repeat any of that at the end of the call. I know I get really excited and I talk really fast. So I'm going to be done now for this portion and introduce you to our wonderful moderator for this evening. I would like uh, everyone to, wherever you are on your Zoom, give a wonderful welcome to one of our newest board members of the National Federation of the Blind, an amazing violinist and an all-around great person, Julia Legrand. So take it away, Julia. Hi everyone, um, both whether you're on the call or listening in on the Scene Change podcast. Um, I, like Caitlin said, I am Julia Legrand and I am so excited to be a recent addition to the PAD board. Um, I'm also thrilled to be here with you all and moderate this discussion. 
often when disability communities talk about music educators and music education, we kind of focus on expanding access to the students in the education setting, which is super important um, and should never go undiscussed. But today we are celebrating Blind Achievement Month. And so we are going to focus on music education as a career for blind artists. And we're so lucky to have three remarkable educators joining us for a conversation today, but I will let them introduce themselves. Um, and we have our division's current president, obviously, who I've already heard from, a current board member and a former board member. And I admire all three of these educators so much as people, as musicians, and as educators. So I am honored to ask them questions. Um, let's get into it. First, could you, panelists, please introduce yourselves um, with where you're calling from, what you teach, and what format you usually use, whether that be remote, in-person, private lessons, classroom, stuff like that. Can we start with you, Caitlin? Absolutely. Great question. Thank you so much for, for having us all engage in this discussion. It's so exciting. Uh, I am Caitlin McIntyre, and I, I do serve as the president of the Performing Arts Division. And currently, uh, I teach voice, piano, guitar, and I actually pretty much mostly have virtual students privately currently. However, I also do teach in person, have taught in person over the years. Um, and I uh, also have taught a little bit of ballroom dancing. I'm a competitive ballroom dancer. So I, I've done a little bit, dabbled in that arena a little bit, um, but mostly music at this point. Wow, that's awesome. Um, can we hear from you next, Leslie? Thank you, Julia. Hello, everybody. My name is Leslie Hamrick, and I am a professional cellist. I teach cello and braille music, and we have two people on the call tonight. One is a former student, and one is a current student, so yay for you guys. Um, and I play in the Elmhurst Symphony, and so I teach mostly remotely. I have one student who comes in person and I also teach my son cello. Awesome, um, thank you so much. And I am the former student, so I'm so grateful to Leslie for all of her instruction. So what about you, Precious? Yes, hello everybody. Um, my name is Precious Perez. I'm a professional singer-songwriter, um, play a couple different instruments. Currently living in um, Louisville, Kentucky, formerly of Massachusetts. A um, lot of new things happening. Um, but I previously taught K through five um, in the elementary level at a public school system, 30 minute general music lessons. I taught voice, um, songwriting, and then I just yesterday got a job at a preschool. So I'm going to be teaching general, just preschool things, but also bringing in music and um other aspects. So I'm very thrilled about that. Um, I've taught remotely a little bit, um, but mainly in person. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting place to be. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. Awesome, Precious. Thank Oh, and congratulations on the job. Yeah, That's congratulations. Oh, so exciting. Um, Thank you. Now, can you guys tell us a bit about what motivated you to start teaching and what motivates you to continue. Um, was there anything specific that made you start teaching? And what are your favorite aspects of it today? And can you start us off, Leslie? Yes, I can. So I have always had 
some kind of, um, there was just something inside me that always wanted to help people and help make a difference. And I didn't actually start teaching until I was in college. And after I had learned Braille music and become comfortable with Braille music, I had tried to teach cello, had a few lessons here and there without Braille music, and realized that I would need to have the music in front of me in some way, shape, or form in order to tell students what measure numbers to go to or what the articulation was or maybe the time signature, key signature, whatever it was, that it was very important for me to be on the same playing field as my sighted students. So it wasn't until after I took a course at Southern California Conservatory of Music in braille music and piano and computer music, like learning cakewalk sonar, that I realized maybe I could do this. So then I had a job at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. I was the sectional teacher as well as being what they call a unit counselor. And my favorite part was the sectional teaching job. And I wound up giving some private lessons and just fell in love with teaching. And then years later when... I was teaching, been teaching on and off ever since um, 2003. And then when my son was born, I stopped teaching for a while and then got back on and have been doing it ever since. And what I found is it's nice to teach. What I love, especially about teaching Braille music, is being able to give back what I necessarily didn't have or didn't take advantage of when I was younger. And I had to, I want to help students not have to play catch up like I did with Braille music. And what I love is whether I'm teaching Braille music or cello, when a student gets it, when something clicks or they're like, wow, that was easier than I thought. And it makes me feel really, really, really good. Or when a student and I figure out something together for the first time and it clicks for both of us. And teaching is just plain fun. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you um, teaching Braille music because I came to you relatively late as a student. So I felt like I was playing catch up too, but it was certainly nice to be aided in my catch up. Um, I really appreciate that. Uh, what about you, Precious? Yeah, so I think for me, um, I really resonate with what you said, Leslie, about like feeling like helping people was something you were meant to do. Like I really thrive on giving back to others and making other people smile and just like, I love that. And I realized like not only could I do that through creating and, and putting music in the world, but I could also do that by teaching. And then, you know, I realized as my career began to kind of grow that um, I 
would not be where I where I am without all of the educators that really believed in me and pushed me forward and gave me that support to really um, continue doing what I was doing in music. So um, I think that really motivated me to to teach and to be a teacher and to really bring music into the world of the next generation. And it's really inspiring for me when, as Leslie said, like it clicks for a student or for me working with younger students, it's amazing to watch them really enjoy it and learn how, how to love music, to meet them where they are and find what resonates with them. Um, especially um, I, worked with a lot of nonverbal students and students with um, different behavioral things going on. And so there were some students that didn't sing and they, you know, once they got used to the routine, they'd start singing or they would start keeping the beat or they would remember a song or a thing that was coming next. And it was just magical. It's this magical thing that happens when when they get it and when the music really becomes a part of their world. And I think for me, that's really what resonates because, you know, with children that grow to love music, they're going to carry that music forward in their life. Um, and it's going to be important and necessary. And I think, you know, it really teaches them that music is fun and it's joyful and it's really part of life. Um, and so I think that's what really inspires me and motivates me. And uh, those are the things that I really love about it. And Leslie, you're right. It is fun. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> wow. That certainly made me smile. That was, that was really powerful. Um, can we hear from you, Caitlin? Yes. Yes. And Precious, you, you totally make us all smile. It's so great. So great job. <laughs> um, I totally agree with both of you. It is fun. And, you know, but I, I think I didn't always think that way. I I went to college for uh, vocal performance. I got my bachelor and master's of music in voice. And so I was very focused on performance and solo performing and opera and oratorio. And we did choir things and chamber music and all that too. But I hadn't uh, either done a lot of teaching maybe a little bit informally but until my undergrad when I had to take my first vocal pedagogy course and I thought okay this would be really interesting to learn about how the voice works which it was and the anatomy and things like that but then also we had to teach a student for 10 weeks and then give a sample mini lesson at the end of the class which was nerve-wracking for me but also my poor student she didn't know it going in so <laughs> but we we, you know, got to work with them and implement the things we we're taking in this class, we're learning in this class, and then kind of, you know, be, um, present how we were doing on our teaching. And it wasn't about how the student had progressed, but it was about our learning and being able to adapt to different learning styles and all that and, and presenting that in front of the class. So um, I remember thinking as I went along, I thought, okay, this will be interesting, a fine assignment. But as I got into more and more of the weeks of teaching, I thought this is so fun. This is so rewarding hearing this person who it had to be someone who had never taken voice lessons before. So she was a total beginner. And, you know, I got to work with her from the ground up and create more beauty in her instrument and, and help cultivate that and help her discover how to, to make beautiful sounds and how to become more passionate about the things she was singing and how to emote and how to express and all these things. And so it was 
being that agent of, of change in her life, helping her thrive and helping her discover those things was so rewarding to me that I realized, wow, I, I too really enjoy teaching and uh, glad I discovered that. So I didn't miss out all these years. Um, and so, yeah, after my master's, I started uh, doing teaching off and on over the years in different states and virtually. And I think, um, you know, I, I still love performing, but I, I love teaching now, especially since the pandemic performances are harder to come by. And um, also having been being someone who has moved a lot over my life, um, I'm grateful uh, for the silver lining of virtual lessons that have taken off so much during the pandemic. So I now um, do, do more teaching than performing. Uh, and I think some of the things, as I mentioned earlier, just helping someone else thrive is so rewarding. That's one of my favorite things. And, and in that same vein, when a student tells me um, that, you know, maybe they've been singing at church and, and then they've been working with me for a little while and then they, they sing again at church and someone tells them, wow, I can tell you've really improved lately. And like your, your voice has more clarity or you, you know, expressed something. I, I could tell you were really into this song and, and telling a story or, you know, your, your voice had a lot of warmth to it and, and you looked really confident up there, things like that, that they hear that. And then I think, wow, I was a small part of making that person a more confident and expressive performer. So that is extremely rewarding, extremely enriching, um, you know, encourages me to continue doing what I'm doing. And, and then of course, I just have to throw in that uh, <laughs> I feel like every voice teacher is a little bit part therapist too. And so I felt very, uh, I felt like I had made it as a voice teacher when I, my first student broke down crying in my, in my lesson, <laughs> you know, not, not crying because of what I had taught them, but because she'd had a really horrible week and she felt comfortable sharing that with me. And, and we hadn't known each other prior to lessons, but it was just that moment of, you know, you, you find this vulnerability between instructor and student that is, is a, a rare thing and not often found in other relationships. And so I, I felt very honored that she, you know, felt comfortable enough with me to share her life, not just her voice, but the voice is so, so personal. Um, other instruments are as well, but I feel like as vocalists, we really, you know, we're, we're giving a, a part of ourselves almost, and it's hard not to kind of separate that from our identity um, or hard to separate that I should say. And so anyway, it just, it, it, it melted my heart a little bit and made me realize that the work we do really can bring joy. It can bring peace. It can bring, uh, you know, encouragement to our students to know that they are able to, to make beauty in the world and make the, the world a little bit more of a kind and good and joyous place. So I am so grateful I get to be a teacher. Thank you. Kevin. That's, that's lovely. Um, have you, um, any of you panelists um, encountered students or colleagues that believe being blind disqualifies you from teaching? And if so, how did you respond? And then sort of in that vein, but a little bit separate, what adaptive techniques do you use when teaching? And can we start with you, Precious? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely, I've encountered um, colleagues, administration, uh, mainly administration, um, that believed that teaching wasn't possible without somebody else in the room that could see. Um, and I think for me, um, a lot of overcoming was done by just going and doing it and showing them through doing it that like, hey, I am capable and you see the results of what I've done here. So you know. Um, 
And I think it's interesting. Like I've, I went to like three job interviews the other day and the attitudes that you get when you walk in as a blind person looking for, you know, childcare slash teaching positions, the questions they ask are, you know, well, you know, we have to, we have a mandate to maintain a line of sight with the kids at all times. How would you do that? Or, you know, how would you be able to know whose things belong to who? And how would you keep kids safe in the classroom? These are the kinds of things people ask because either they genuinely don't know or they have some sort of limitation that they need to meet. Um, And, you know, you encounter that, but then there's also the people that listen to you when you say, like, you know, for me, for example, with the younger kids, I say, if they're down on the floor playing, so am I. If they're running around, I'm following them around because for me, that's the way that I can keep track of where they are and, you know, really paying attention to what areas of the room they're in, how the room is laid out. Like I pay really close attention to things and I'm in the thick of it with them versus observing. And so um, those are like the kinds of things that I use when I'm teaching them, picking up on the cues of like, how their chairs sound when they're sitting and when they're moved and which area of the room they typically are in when they do this activity or that activity, what it sounds like when they're running around or when the sounds get louder and they're escalating, that means they're getting out of control and might need some quiet time. Like there are so many different scenarios and so many different things that um, I think we do subconsciously too, as blind teachers um, that, that it's interesting to try and explain Um, but you really encounter these attitudes of when you find somebody that says, well, everybody should be doing that as far as, you know, being in the thick of it and doing this, that, and the other, or, well, naturally, you know, that makes sense versus, well, I just don't really know, you know, we have to make sure that this can happen. And you kind of can feel the vibe of like, oh, I don't think she can do this or, oh, like this is totally doable. And what you're saying makes sense to me. So I feel like um, it's definitely a mixed bag and you never really know what you're going to get as far as like people's perceptions. But I mean, um, that's kind of something that you learn how to overcome. And I think it's something we as disabled people are used to dealing with, unfortunately. Um, But I think my favorite thing to do is just be like, well, you don't think I can watch me do it. That is so impressive and courageous. It's really fun to hear you talk about that. And it makes me want to be your preschool student. But unfortunately, I'm too old. Um, So can we hear from you next, Caitlin? Yes, I know. Same here. You must have the most wonderful classroom, Precious. That is so awesome. Thank you for sharing those. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think as a private music teacher, you get a little bit less. And I've certainly experienced a lot of, uh, dare I say, discrimination and questioning in my performance career as to what I can do as a performer. Um, but I've, I've been blessed in that I haven't had as much direct opposition in the private music teaching. I think you have really experienced a lot of that precious in the classroom setting, which is so difficult um, to have to continue facing those low expectations. And I, I, I do, you know, there have been the occasional person, has been the occasional person that will say, well, you know, how are you going to know if someone has neck tension or how are you going to know if someone is expressing what they're singing about, you know? And um, 
I think most of that came from occasional faculty at, at universities. Uh, and yeah, you know, to counteract that, I can say, well, if the person will allow me and is comfortable, I will ask if I can touch their neck and, and see what their, their neck is doing. If, first of all, I have to say, you know, you can hear so much of it auditorily. You can hear tension. You can hear tongue tension. You can hear if breathing is not going well. Um, and you can hear, uh, you know, if the expression is not there. You can hear someone putting their heart and soul into a song versus, um, you know, singing it flatly. Or for piano, you can hear the, the intonation and the, um, you know, the, the dynamics and the phrasing. You can hear all of that coming out versus just pounding on the keys or whatever it may be. So, uh, but I, I do use a lot of, uh, you know, with permission, I, I do use a lot of uh, kinesthetic learning, if you will. So saying, may I touch your arm? Okay, great. Let's try putting, um, you know, your let's, let's make sure your wrist is more relaxed or whatever, if it's for piano with voice, may I, you know, uh, feel the way you're breathing. Okay, why don't you put your hands on my rib cage and let's feel, let's take a breath together and feel how, you know, when I take a breath, a, a wonderfully uh, deep breath, I, I, my whole rib cage expands and makes room for that breath. Um, so, you know, doing things, uh, using the sense of touch, using a lot of auditory cues. Um, some things that can be a challenge are, like Leslie said, you know, preparing lessons, um, preparing music uh, for, for students and working with them on that. But uh, I, I do a lot of things auditorily and quite good at memorizing music. So that hasn't been a barrier up to this point. I also have uh, a little bit of vision. So to use some large print music. So sometimes that is something, if it is a new piece I've never worked on, I'm not familiar with, I will get the music and, and uh, study it kind of along with the student to make sure that they're not missing anything they need to know. Um, but I think, you know, like you said, precious, a lot of it, sometimes it takes a little creativity, uh, but there really is, is nothing stopping from a blind person becoming a wonderful teacher of sighted and blind students. I actually have a lot of blind students as well, which is really fun because we can kind of skip past the worry about how this is going to work and just say, okay, let's, let's do a lot of this verbally. So it can be a challenge virtually as well. I will just say, because you do take that kinesthetic element out, which is the one thing that I am sad about virtually. Um, but you can do so much verbally asking, you know, uh, open-ended questions of the student to have them tell me what they are feeling, what they are doing, what they're experiencing, what their alignment is, what their breath is like. Um, and then also, you know, giving a lot of explanation on my end. So I hope that's helpful. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, what about you, Leslie? So where I experienced the most uncertainty, if you will, was my first couple attempts to play in a professional orchestra. I would have conductors say, well, I don't know if you have time for this or you're not dedicated enough. How are you going to know when to come in, etc." And the second attempt, I got as far as the principal cellist who said, well, this isn't going to work and I don't know how you're going to do this. And so it wasn't until I auditioned for the Elmhurst Symphony and I mean, this conductor is always, he's great. He's probably one of the most open-minded, receptive people I've ever met. And I had played for him. Um, he knew, I had made him aware that I was blind before the audition because I had asked the universal question of, is there sight reading? <laughs> and explaining that how I would 
be not able to do that because I was blind. And luckily he was just very matter of fact about it. And I said, well, let's play for, I'll play first and then we'll talk. So that's what I did. And he had similar questions like, how do you, how are you going to know when to come in? How do you know where we are in the music? If you have different tempos, things like that. And I was very thrilled at the end of the audition when he said, you know, I'd like to try it. This is new territory for me, but I'd like to try it. And so we got to pioneer together. He, I was the first blind person in his orchestra. So he pioneered in that part. And then five years ago, when I got into the Elmhurst Symphony, that was the first time that I had attempted learning orchestra music in Braille. So if anybody were able to tell me that playing an orchestra as a blind person is not possible, I would say, yes, it is possible. Come and watch. So as far as teaching, I would always let prospective students know that I'm blind. And but I, the way I phrase it is, since I'm blind, I use Braille music. Since I'm blind, I, I use a lot of touch. And that's interesting, Caitlin, that you say, if the student is comfortable with it. Because I've always felt until recently that if a student doesn't want, is not comfortable with me touching them for the, with the, the cello particularly, then they're not the right student for me. And I felt that way for years and years and years. And with my son, since he has ADHD and is on the spectrum, I had no choice but to tone down the, the touch. And I touch him very minimally now, only when I have to. And because he just wasn't plain comfortable with it, and my choice was either keep doing it, keep touching him, even though he was uncomfortable with it, and have him quit, or listen to what he's saying. And as a result, I feel that I've been able to really pick up on a lot more by sound that I wasn't able to before. And with the cello, I mean, you can hear a tense sound. You can hear a tense bow arm. You can hear if the left hand is out of tune. I, tr I troubleshoot. I say, well, is your left elbow, where's your left elbow? Is it down or is it up? And if the student is old enough or advanced enough, they'll tell me, yeah, oops, it was down. Or is your left hand flat? And, oh, yeah, it was flat. Things like that. And, of course, this last student that I had, she was pretty comfortable. We had a pretty good rapport going, and she was pretty comfortable with me touching her, but I, you know, Caitlin, that's a really interesting point that if they're comfortable, because if they're not, there's nothing I can do to change it. I mean, we can try it. And if it works out great, if it doesn't, I've actually, I had one student uh, quit because she was comfortable with me using touch for a long time. And then all of a sudden she became a teenager and she wasn't comfortable with it anymore. It never dawned on me that that would change, that comfortable with being touched 
that that would change, but it did. And I'm more aware of it even now, especially since the pandemic. So what I've done with my son is devised a new way to monitor what his elbows are doing, what his shoulders are doing. And it's simply taking one pencil in each hand and using those like little canes to touch, to monitor uh, what's going on. And it really works well and it's very non-threatening. So that is something that I will definitely be using moving forward when I get another cello student in person. Cool. That is really interesting to hear about sort of those hosts of techniques that you use. Um, so now I'm kind of curious about what advice you would give to blind performing artists who want to try their hand at teaching their performing art. And I know you've sort of um, touched on this a little bit already, um, but if you could provide, talk a little bit more about that and were there any resources, whether they be specific bits of advice, situations, or mentors that kind of gave you the confidence to pursue um, your teaching? And can we start with you, Leslie? Yes. So first of all, I think the most important advice I could give a fellow blind student who wants to be a performance major or a teacher, do not try to reinvent the wheel yourself because that will only lead to burnout. And what I mean by this is take advantage of there's so much stuff out there with the performing arts division. And in addition to the performing arts division, take advantage of your resources, network, find another blind person that is doing what you wanna do and pick their brain. And the second piece of advice I could give you is the more the stronger your support network is, the more likely that you will be able to reach your goals. Surround yourself with people that believe in you and your abilities. And, and I know this is easier said than done, but do your best to let go of the naysayers because you could educate them or try to educate them till kingdom come and they're just not going to get it. So try to surround yourself with positive people who believe in you and your abilities and ask questions. If you don't know how to do something, don't be, af don't be afraid to ask. Like my support network, for example, for the Elmhurst Symphony. So I've got the conductor, Stephen Alltop, and then I've got my um, transcriber who transcribes my music. And I have the other cellist in the section, who, whoever I'm a stand partner with. They might give me some verbal cues. Um, I know a couple who, if somebody, if there's a cellist who hasn't guided me out on stage before, I find that they're more than willing to learn how to do that, how to guide me on and off stage. I just, you know, I just ask and just be as open and as clear as possible. Um, if you make a mistake, that's just, you could treat it as a learning experience and try not to let it get you down too much. I mean, yeah, you could have your 
your period or your um, time where you say like, oh man, I screwed up. What did I do wrong? But as long as that doesn't last very long and as long as you're able to bounce back and be resilient. And of course, that's what we in the performing arts division are there for. We want to have ideas bounced off of us and we want to serve as mentors. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's certainly great to have a network like the performing arts division. Um, I'm certainly grateful for it. And it's interesting too, thinking about, you know, letting go of naysayers at a certain point. It's definitely a hard line to try to figure out, you know, how to handle. Uh, it's a difficult balance, but yeah, you can't educate someone forever because you don't have forever. So um, can we hear from you, Caitlin? Yes. Yeah. Great, great advice, Leslie. I, I guess mine's a little bit more um, music oriented and less blindness oriented. So something I would probably say to anyone I was talking to about teaching, whether or not they're blind, but of course it absolutely applies to blind educators as well, are, are a couple things. So first of all, um, you know, as you're going about your own training in this craft, uh, do take a pedagogy course, a course on how to teach pedagogy. I, I strongly recommend it. I was very impacted by mine um, in college. And I think it's really important, especially for voice, but for others as well, to gain a, a really solid understanding of the fundamentals of your instrument, of especially with voice, the anatomy of the human body as, as how it pertains to the voice, how things work, how breath works. Um, and I, you know, I'm not saying I am perfectly knowledgeable on all these subjects. I would like to continue my learning in these areas, but to have at least a foundation in those things is so helpful so that then you can guide your students more properly into good, healthy singing technique, or if it's piano, good, healthy playing technique um, or guitar, you know, having uh, good, relaxed playing so that you don't have unnecessary tension. You want to have a little tension. You obviously have to hold your arm up or stand up if you're singing or whatever, right? You have a little bit of tension, but not unhealthy stress tension. Um, I think, you know, learning those things about your, your body or in this case, or, or your instrument um, and, and just good teaching techniques as an educator, if you've never done that before, learning good best practices on how to prepare lessons, how to engage with your students, all those things can just be really helpful in setting you off on the right foot, whatever instrument or performing art you are going to teach. And then secondly, in that, I think it's really helpful to observe other lessons. So of course, you know, I've been taking lessons in music since I was about six years old. So I've had a lot of years of lessons, but you know, it wasn't um, until college that I sat in on some other lessons. And I thought, oh, this is really, really interesting. Um, actually, I think I maybe did in high school a, a couple of times when I was interviewing different voice teachers, but I, you know, it, it's so uh, helpful to watch someone else work and glean ideas from them, learn helpful tips from how they teach a student, how they diagnose vocal health issues, how the student interacts, you know, what, what you might do in a similar situation if someone asks you a tough question or uh, working on repertoire, just learning techniques from other teachers is, is really valuable. So if you're able to ask your teacher to sit in on a couple of their lessons, or sometimes, um, you know, they might, might know someone else who might be willing to let you sit in, um, even if it's not your same subject area, your same instrument, even if it's a choir rehearsal, you know, just different observing in different situations so that you can then take some of those 
strategies and implement them in your own teaching. And uh, I want to say too, with the pedagogy, if you're not able to take a university course or a course in that, read some read some books. You know, I don't remember currently what's available on Bard and Bookshare and things like that, but there are a lot of books out there. There's a lot of uh, online content. There's some great. There's uh, you know some good podcasts. The the Full Voice I think is one. Um, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff that's that can help you in your teaching career. There are even some great Facebook groups. You know, for different professional voice teachers is one. There's people ask questions in there all the time about working with different kinds of students. So utilize those resources. And then lastly, I would say if you've never taught before you know, give a couple trial lessons, even if it's to friends and family, say, hey, you know, can I practice on you? Because, you know, if you're going to be asking to get paid for this, you want to make sure that you are have have a good service to offer, right? So um, you're probably an amazing performer, that could be one route, or maybe you just have a really compassionate heart, and you want to help people. Both those things are great stepping stones um, to being a good teacher. But you also want to make sure that you can carry out, you know, kind of those ideas in your head and actually implement them in a successful lesson. And not every lesson has to be quote unquote successful. I don't mean that, you know, every lesson is going to look a little different. Sometimes you're going to make major breakthroughs in lessons. And sometimes you're going to feel like you didn't do anything than maybe a warm up and plotting through a song, but everything, everything is a, a stepping stone into continued development, but, you know, try it out on a, on a couple people um, so that you feel confident so that when you do start to market yourself and advertise yourself as a teacher, or maybe you're going out for those job positions in schools or whatever it is, you feel like, yes, I am comfortable doing this. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses too, and things that I can keep working on. And, uh, you know, just so that you have that confidence so that you are not doubting yourself at all either. Awesome. Thank you. That is a lot of good things to think about. Uh, makes me feel like I should get my to-do list out. Um, what about you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so as far as, um, your instrument. I totally second everything you said, Caitlin, especially for the voice, just really honing your craft and really developing it. Um, I found that going through developing my craft and having a benchmark of where I started and where I ended up, um, it really makes you able to identify those things in other students and to be able to um, note their progress and to relate to them when they're struggling. Hey, I was there too, you know? Um, I'm going to offer two resources that my voice teacher in college imparted to me, which are, um, I believe it's called vocal, it's something about vocal health and it's by Joanna Kasdan and it's on Bookshare as well as Secrets of Singing by Jeffrey Allen, which is kind of like a warm up book that kind of gives you an idea of different warm ups you can do. Um, those are specifically vocal resources, but there are definitely plenty of resources out there um, that you can utilize as far as just kind of really developing yourself um, and your instrument. Um, but I think, you know, another thing I would say is it's okay to lean on your mentors, to lean on people, you know, in the performing arts division, in the blind community, because truthfully, it's not easy to do as far as um, having to go against all the low expectations. I mean, we do this as blind people all the time, just in our daily lives. But I think it adds another layer depending on whether you're doing private teaching or whether you're pursuing teaching in a classroom setting. Um, I definitely have experienced more issues in the classroom setting as far as like, basically no curriculum is accessible as far as music education curriculum and methodology books. And so I'm basically 
pulling from the people that I know and the groups, you know, Facebook groups and this, that, and the other to figure out how this song goes or what songs I could use for this age or for this theme or for this, that, and the other. Um, so that can be a little bit frustrating, but I think the biggest thing to take away from that is to know how to advocate for yourself and to be resourceful in that, you know, you ask questions. And um, I think as far as education goes, um, if you're wanting to do music education, really getting to know the different methodologies, there are a couple different approaches to teaching music, different philosophies, really figuring out the kind of teacher you are and what approach really fits with you and what philosophy about teaching and the outcome really resonates with you so that you can strongly advocate for yourself and how your approach ties into the overall big picture of music and music's um, importance in education as a whole and really just be able to articulate that for administrators or for a you know private academy that you're signing up to teach voice at or teach something else um so really just being self-aware and self-motivated and um just really understanding why you're doing what you're doing and what it means to do what you're what you're wanting to do awesome that is so much great advice from everyone um understanding that all performing artists are constantly trying to improve are there currently any areas where you are struggling in your teaching or areas where you want to improve uh that you feel comfortable sharing of course um and can we start with you Caitlin yeah I think that's a great question and you know I think it's good to self-reflect often and think about areas in which you can improve um because none of us are perfect right so I think a couple things that come to mind is that I, um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm struggling, but I think one thing I, I do wish I had learned sooner was Braille music. And so Leslie, I know we've talked about that in the past. We, we may have to get together on that. Um, but I, you know, I think that could be a valuable tool um, because, you know, as I've said, sometimes if a student wants to learn a new piece and it's got a lot of melismas or whatever it may be, uh, you know, it, it can be a challenge to make sure I'm, I'm able to help them in the way that maybe they need, I can still help with artistry and still help with technique. Um, and, and that's mostly what I do, but you know, sometimes there's a student who needs help with, with the notes and that can be a challenge. So, um, that's, that's something to continue working on best practices for that. Uh, I think also I, I, I think I've been improving at this, but I love, I, I mean, I, I love technique, you know, I could do a, a whole lesson just doing technical warmups. <laughs> So I've had to make sure that, all right, let me look at the time here. Okay, we've been doing about a third of the lesson. Let's jump into some actual music here, right? So, and I think a lot of people struggle, can struggle with that because um, it's so fun to work on the voice. But uh, I think my piano and guitar, I struggle with that less maybe. But um, that's something to continue working on. And, and with that too, I, I think just, um, you know, balancing what the student wants. I, I think it's going... Uh, I haven't had any complaints. So I think all my students, it's going well, but, you know, just in my, in my mind is I think, how can I keep improving? Just continuing to make sure I'm meeting the needs of my students by balancing appropriate amounts in the lesson of technique and uh, actually working on songs and talking about artistry and all that good stuff. So I, I also am a total music theory nerd. And so anytime someone asks me a question about music theory, I'm like, well, okay, are you all right? If we go off on a little sidetrack of music theory, great. 20 minutes later. Oh, so good. So, <laughs> and I, 
I think that can actually be a really good thing when the when the time is right. But um, you know, reigning in my unbridled enthusiasm for music theory can be a, a challenge sometimes. So <laughs> I, I love it. But yeah, I, I think there's you know always things to ponder on how to continue being the best possible instructor you can be. Awesome. And I honestly relate to both of those uh, tangent things so much in my own just practicing. I'll yes. be working on techniques and I'm like, oh man, I have, on, I'm on, I'm like two hours in here and I don't have much time. <laughs> I should get to repertoire at some point. So true. Um, wonderful. Uh, what about you, Precious? I think one thing I foresee having to improve on, I guess, currently is maintaining my energy and like my own personal, like, stamina to be able to keep up with anything um because you know I've seen a lot of transitions I'm still in the midst of a lot of transitions personally and so getting used to a full school schedule and um you know previously um I'd done student teaching which was full-time and then my job but then my job was only part-time so this is going to be a an adjustment to really be able to figure out how to balance my energy and what the kids need and be able to provide that and um I think also just um really getting back on track with my own um like technique as it relates to my instrument because I find that you know as I've been kind of running around and trying to do this and stressing out about that like it's harder to take a full breath. I mean, part of that might be because I also have asthma. That's also likely, but <laughs> just kind of getting back into the swing of really just feeling at ease and um, being mindful and aware so that I'm able to refine my technique and continue growing and improving and just really um, providing the best possible, you know, education, music education for, for the for the young little ones as I can. Oh, that just that makes me so happy to hear you talking about that. And wow, it also sounds really like well, it would take way more energy than I have to teach preschoolers. So I admire you for that. Um, what about you, Leslie? So I think one of the things I always struggle with is there's a difference between wanting to get something accomplished with a student and then they're and then striving for perfectionism and just letting go that just recognizing that not everybody has the same abilities that I teach. Everybody has different strengths, different weaknesses, remembering that it's important to meet the student where they're at and get that established where they're at and then figure out what they can improve on, what's going well. Um, Another thing that I've had to work on is time management because if I don't set a timer, whether it's a, my Braille timer or Lady A, I will always go over time. <laughs> so I always manage to set the timer. So when that 30 minutes is up, I try to schedule about 15 minutes in between each so I can transition from one student to another. I think that something that I've been improving on is recognizing that yes, there are our students, but they also are our teachers. And there are more times often than not where I might learn a new 
tip or trick from a current student. And I'll give you an example. With my youngest Braille music student, I was teaching her how to read quarter notes. And you know how with your quarter note, you have an eighth note and then you have dot six underneath it. That's your quarter note. Well, this student of mine, she came up with, so the quarter note's wearing his right shoe. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then the half note, is wearing his left shoe. So, and eighth notes are wearing no shoes and whole notes and 16th notes are wearing both shoes, dots three and six. So I use that all the time now and people really get a kick out of it. That is really fun. Thank you so much for answering all of my questions, all three of you, particularly those last two. I think, you know, advice and um, being a little bit vulnerable with areas, you know, that you're always working on is really important because, it's just nice to hear that you guys are still working on things and you aren't perfect yet. It's always nice to be reminded. Um, now I would like to open it up for some questions for uh, from our awesome attendees on the call. So if you just say your name, I will call on you and then you can ask your question. I think Jason raised his hand. My question is how does... I imagine at some point during your teaching or, or at least when you're wanting to talk with sighted music reading peers, um, I'm wondering how you might deal with learning or if you feel it's important to learn the um, analogous print um, music notation, you know, symbols and things, or at least have an idea of what they look like. Um, you know, have you run into issues where you're having to sort of explain those things in print rather than in Braille? I so I might not be the, the best person to answer this because I do I do read print music, um, albeit extremely slowly. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think um, for me, I, I think it is helpful. I don't think it's I don't think if you don't if you don't know it, it won't preclude you from still being able to be a good teacher and have a productive musical career. But I think it would probably ease some potential kerfuffles if you, you know, are trying to talk about a certain measure or a talk about a time signature or talk about this or that. You can do most of that verbally, but I think it doesn't hurt to just have a little bit of foundation, um, especially, you know, the, the more complex scores get with multiple instruments and things like that, how they're laid out um clefts and things like that uh with beginning students especially i think if if you're helping them learn how to read music you kind of have to know all right if we're I, yeah i guess that would be my my main um concern I, i've taught some sighted students uh some reading while also teaching them piano and we work on you know note naming and cleft naming and things like that and so you so certainly don't have to do that with your students you could do things all auditorily and leave them to do sight reading on their own um, but you, you know, in order to do that, you need to know what you're, what you're referring to. So one thing that was helpful for me when I was young was a little, a little, uh, contraption that was a music staff with a movable note that you could move around. It was like to practice note naming and the staff, uh, I don't think originally it had raised lines, but my wonderful mother puff painted it for us. And nice. so it had these, yeah, it was great. So it had these little raised lines. So I could feel what the staff felt like, feel what the cleft felt like, feel a little eighth note moving around on it and be comfortable where those notes were. So, um, you know, I don't think you're going to need 
that in every situation, but I don't think it would hurt. As Caitlin said, the basics are important. Like, for example, knowing, you know, the spaces, which notes the spaces are on a staff and then which notes are, you know, the whole every good boy does fine acronym. Those are the lines and like knowing what's in between them. Um, I think as a non-visual learner and just never having the ability to read print music, I don't have a concept of like an overall score. Like I don't feel like I'd be able to be like, this is what an eighth note looks like. <laughs> this is what a quarter note looks like. Um, but I think the basic foundation of like where things are placed on a score um, is definitely helpful. Um, and it's something that most people don't teach blind musicians. Um, I definitely like remember seeing a staff maybe once in my life, like a tactile staff. Um, so I think it's helpful to have, like Caitlin said, the basics. Um, but I think there's a lot that can be done, especially with theory. If you can kind of demonstrate and, and find another way to demonstrate these things for students. For example, if it's like a time signature thing, you count it out with them. You kind of show them visually, like if you have, you know, a metronome or something like that, um, counting it out really like repeat repetition really helps. Um, I think I'm of the mind that, you know, music first and listening and really internalizing music is the best way to start anyway um, for anyone especially when the kids are small and then as people grow up. So I definitely think that it's important, but it's not like absolutely, uh, you know, essential for, for what you're doing as a blind teacher. The first place I learned about a staff was, or what a staff actually looks like was when I was working with Leslie. So do you have anything to add, Leslie? Yes. I think it's important to know the layout of the staff and what notes look like, especially if you're teaching sighted students. And it's important also to know which notes have open note head and which ones have closed note head and whether there's flags on a note. The more flags, the smaller the note. So you have an, an eighth note is one. It's a, like you make an egg, you color it in and you put a stick on it. That's your quarter note, and then you add the flag. It's an eighth note. You add another flag. It's a sixteenth note. You add your flag. It's a second note, so on and so forth. And especially, I remember with my, uh, I had this six-year-old pianist, and he had the book in front of him in print. I had it in Braille, and there were things I had to explain to him what it meant. And because he had the print in the in the braille, it's not like I could take his finger and put it on the braille. I had to verbalize, and then sometimes either mom or his grandmother helped me would describe it to me, and then I'd say like, "Oh yeah, that has a closed note head, or there's notes that have stem up or stem down." Nice. That that makes a lot of sense. I would imagine especially important with with little kids um and people who don't know how to read music yet so that's that's a really interesting thing to think about thank you for that question um and we have something from annie in the chat i believe her microphone is still not working so she asks if any of you have had experience um with someone bringing as a student bringing in like a really complicated piece before that you've never heard um 
and how you deal with that. And I'm not sure if this has happened to any of you or all of you. So maybe you can just take it away if it has happened to you. This is Caitlin. And I've had a little bit of experience with that. Um, I, I've had a student say, oh, I just started working on this piece this week because I got asked to sing it at church and I'm singing it on Sunday and I really want to work on it. And it wasn't, you know, anything uh, super complicated, um, but they're oftentimes things I don't know. And, uh, you know, I, I think it can be a challenge for sure. Um, I think you can ask your students ahead of time, first of all, you know, if it is a totally brand new student, um, then this wouldn't apply. But you can let your students know that, hey, I love to be able to get familiar with any pieces that you are working on. So if you'd like to send me the names ahead of time, um, you know, then I can listen to some videos and make sure I at least know what's going on. So that's one thing. But of course, that doesn't help your your situation of just being thrust this, <laughs> this new piece of music. Um, so I would say, you know, first of all, well, can you sing it for me? Can you, if, if they've at least learned it, you know, just go ahead and sing it through for me. Um, and let's talk about what, what are you needing help with? Um, sometimes maybe it is the notes and that can be a little more difficult, uh, but maybe they've got the music there and, and they can plunk it out on the piano real quick and you can say, okay, all right, let's try that. Let's break it down. Let's work on the tough intervals. Maybe they say, oh, it's this part. I'm having trouble. What is that? Oh, it's a major seventh. Let's work on singing that interval. Let's do a couple exercises to work on that interval. Um, maybe it is, you know, uh, that they are, it's really hard and they just feel like they can't emote and express while they're singing on it because they're, well, they're singing it because it's so technically demanding. That's something you can work on, right? Like that's not, um, you know, there, there are other things you can find to work on than just the notes. Uh, if they at least have it, somewhat learned. Uh, you can focus on those other things like expression and artistry and phrasing and all that. And now if they're totally new to it as well, that can be a challenge because you're, you know, they're maybe wanting your help learning it. And so I totally get where you're coming from. Um, I think in that case, hey, maybe let's take a moment and let's listen to a recording together of uh, one of your favorite singers, you know, let's look up Renee Fleming singing this song or whatever. Um, and, and that's, you know, I've had sighted teachers do that occasionally with me. Um, that's not an, an unheard of thing to do during lesson time, right? Let's talk about it. Let's listen to it. Let's talk about it. Let's analyze it. Um, and that can help you at least get comfortable with the, the timing of the piece, the uh, kind of style it's in. Is it Baroque? Is it classical? Uh, is it contemporary? What is the feel? So hopefully a few of those things might help. I totally get where you're coming from, the stress of that situation. Though. So kudos to you for taking that on. That is such a practical answer. Leslie or Precious, do you have anything to add? I've experienced this with a student, the, the last cellist I had, he would walk in and say, I worked on this piece in orchestra today. Can we go over it? And she was advanced enough where she could play it for me. And she might play a few measures and I could say, okay, let's do a different fingering. So the notes are all in position or so they're coming out clearer what's your bowing here? Okay, let's try using more bow or less bow. What's the dynamic here? And she says, it's forte. Well, I'm hearing a mezzo forte right now. Try playing closer to the bridge. So with her, I was able to have her play the piece for me and then we could work on it from there. Awesome. What about you, Precious? Have you had an experience like that yet? <laughs> yes, I have. Um, but I think uh, Caitlin and Leslie have said everything I would have said. Okay. <laughs> I just, I am right on board with all of that. Love it. Awesome. 
Well, I guess you all had answers, so I should have just called on you anyway. But awesome. It's that was a really wonderful question. So thank you so much, Annie. Do we have more questions? So I loved uh what Caitlin said earlier about a music teacher, but particularly a voice teacher being um like part therapist. Um <laughs> and I couldn't totally personally attest to that. Um, I started taking voice lessons with my first teacher when I was going through all kinds of stuff in my life, and I cried in lessons uh, more times than I'd like to admit, but it was the perfect uh, outlet. But um, uh, along that line, I'm wondering uh, for any uh, any of you who'd like to answer this, um, have you experienced times <clears throat> when your blindness has had any impact, uh, positive or negative, uh, any change on the relationships that you have with your students or the interaction between you and your student? Uh, and if so, how has it changed because of your blindness? Well, I'm sorry to be so talkative, but I can jump in. Um, <laughs> I think one thing that's been really neat for me is that actually most of my students are blind or visually impaired right now. And I guess the word is getting around. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks actually a lot to Leslie, who has referred several students to me, which is so wonderful. Um, but I, I think that's really a, a cool thing in that they probably have not had a lot of, in some some you know, I think of some who are kids, uh, some who are adults as well. But, you know, as a kid, sometimes you don't have a lot of other blind role models or mentors or teachers, right? Your, your teachers primarily are sighted, even a lot of TVIs are sighted or things like that. So um, I think, I, I hope, I'd like to hope that it's a, a place where we can have a, a cool, um, you know, connection and I can impart maybe a little wisdom to them and, and they can learn and, and even teach me as well um, in the way that I articulate things to my students. I think adult students, similarly, it's, it takes a little pressure off, you know, where like, mm -hmm. you're not, you don't feel like you almost have to perform to show that you can do this as a blind person, because you're just that that level, that playing field is already leveled. So I think that can be a really outstanding experience to just both kind of be on the same page of how you want to communicate. And of course, not everyone receives information in the same way. But you know, you kind of have a little bit more uh, communal desires on how you want to convey and receive information. So I think that can be a really cool uh, experience to, to have. Um, I fortunately have not had negative, I guess, negative experiences that would have happened. They, they never became my students. So <laughs> I uh, am grateful for the positive ones. Yeah, this is precious. I have had mostly positive experiences. Um, as Caitlin said, like, I've had blind students or just blind uh, people looking for, you know, some guidance on songwriting or um, vocal technique. And it's been, it's just this wonderful connection and mentorship that you can build with somebody who is also wanting to hone their craft and know what kind of resources are available if they haven't had access to them. So I think it's really empowering for both myself and the student that's blind. As far as just, um, overall students um kids are amazing uh they just kind of say what they think um 
And, you know, at first you get the, what happened to your eyes? And I had one little guy go, are you okay? Do they hurt? And it was like the sweetest thing. And I was like, no, it's okay. I'm fine. And then I had, I had another kid go, I'm your seven-year-old butler. Can I help you? And there would be like four of them helping me to the door. And they're just like the sweetest because oh they realize God. like, you know, you explain it to them and they kids just get it. Like, they, I don't know what it is, but they just get it. And it's the sweetest thing to see them really understand. Like, they'll tell each other, hey, she can't see you doing that. Miss Precious, they want to ask you something. And it's, it's <laughs> the best thing ever. So... Um, that's mostly like the positive experience. I think any negative experiences I've had haven't come from the students. It's been, you know, either in job interviews or from administration. But I think overall, um, like mostly university administration, just to clarify, like I've had, I've been fortunate enough to where I did teach, the administration was wonderful and didn't really, you know, question it or freak out. They were just like, how can we help? So that was nice. Um, but yeah, I've been fortunate too, and I haven't had too many negative experiences uh that being said there's always room for things to change hopefully not but you know <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> have an experience a couple experiences i'd like to share the first one is when i had a student who when the mom found out that i was blind her first reaction was uh-oh and of course i found uh- this out second hand <laughs> She said, uh-oh. And then I called her up and we had a long talk. And she said to me, the mom said to me at the end of the conversation, I appreciate your honesty and your openness. And so she felt very comfortable having her daughter work with me. And it was really cool to work with this student because I went out with them to this place called the String Project to help the girl look for a cello to to buy a cello. And that was a really neat experience playing the different cellos and then having the girl play them. And I was able to help her pick one out. I had another student who put a, started putting a blindfold on when he would practice. And he said he could hear better, like keep better track of his sound versus when he didn't have the blindfold on or off rather. So it's, it's really cool the experiences that you can get from your students and mm. with the parents. As far as negative, the only the only one that I had was the student who decided after like a year and a half that she wasn't comfortable with me using touch on her anymore. And uh, I was at a time in my life where I took that really, really hard. And I think, unfortunately, it did something negative to the friendship I had with the mom. So a a piece of advice I could give is if you can avoid it, don't try teaching your friends kids because there's always a there's a double relationship there. and, And or the other piece of advice I can give is not to get. You know, you can be friendly with the parents, but not to get too buddy-buddy or too personal. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, we have another question from Annie in the chat. I think this one is for Precious. How do you communicate with nonverbal students? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, with nonverbal students, a lot of it is like, it's interesting because in a sense, for us, it's like being on Zoom and, you know, the microphone's muted and they're trying, you're basically uh, doing a class, a virtual class for the kids and they're in a whole nother room and you can't really hear what they're doing. So you're just hoping it, it works. That's kind of how it feels at first um, because they can't tell me like, yes, they understand or no, they don't. Um, it's a thing where I just went in with the energy and I was like, all right, everybody, we're going to sing the hello song. And you just sing the song and like dance around with them and then pull out the puppets. They love the puppets, by the way. Great things. Um, <laughs> I love the puppets. I bought way too many of them. But um, so I love true. puppets. <laughs> So it's really just, I would just do what I normally did and just, I did it in a routine form because a lot of the time, like at first they didn't really understand what was happening. Cause like, Oh, new music teacher, new thing happening. What is this? And then after time went by, they would recognize the activities and some of them would like get very excited and like outwardly just like make sounds or jump around or like participate. And sometimes ones who typically didn't really speak would start singing and it was like the most amazing thing to be like oh my goodness they're getting it like they're remembering and they're understanding it um so really it's just like keeping the energy up and just being engaged with them and being present um because even though they couldn't communicate with me like that was my way of channeling the energy that I wanted to create in that classroom and then them receiving it and giving it back. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a great time. Awesome. Thank you so much for that answer. And thank you for the question, Annie. And uh, do we have any more questions before we wrap up? There are yeah, more there was Alejandro, I think was in the chat. You were asking, hopefully I got this right, that, you know, what is the ideal age to start voice or other instruments and advice to someone uh, learning voice yeah, I can jump in. And I think, you know, it, it does depend on, on instrument for some things. I know there's, uh, you know, differing opinions, but some people encourage students not to start um, woodwinds, for example, or, or brass instruments, I should say. Sorry, not woodwinds. Brass instruments too, um, too young. But uh, honestly, I think any exposure to music starting young is, is wonderful. Like I started piano at six and voice at seven. And I think learning musicality, learning about music is you can never start too young. Of course, you don't ever want to pressure a young child into doing something. You know, a lot of things for um, the under school age crowd should should be fun. You know, they should be about play. They should be about exploration. So if the kid is not into it at four years old, well, then don't do it at four years old. If they're like, oh, my gosh, I really want to play the piano. I really want to play a violin or whatever. Then great. Do Suzuki method and do, you know, do some stuff that's age appropriate. Um, for voice, I think a, a caveat is you don't want to uh, have the student singing repertoire that is inappropriate for their voice or using technique that their body has not developed yet. So um, you get some childhood opera stars who are using opera sounding voices, but they are doing things to their voices that are not healthy as a seven-year-old or as a 12-year-old or things like that. So um, that can be a, a challenge uh, to make sure that you are not overstretching 
your student's body in those young ages. But if they're singing folk songs at seven, like I did great, you know, I think that I, I hope that turned out just fine for me. Right. I was singing some, some lovely folk songs, but, um, I was actually in the, uh, in Canada at the time at the Royal Conservatory of Music and they have a, a great program for that where you start in grade one and you progress and the songs, you know, get harder as you go and you start with these lovely, simple folk songs. So, um, you know, just be aware of age appropriate technique and age appropriate repertoire. Uh, and I would love to hear, you know, Precious's and Leslie's thoughts on that too. And then as far as starting in as a middle age, first of all, it's never too late. I, I had um, some lessons with someone who just kind of wanted to try out voice. He didn't want to do it long term, but he was like a 70 year old guy and he loved it, you know, and he'd never taken lessons before, but we had so much fun and he's not going to go off and be, you know, the next, I don't know, Pavarotti or something, but he's going to be, you know, a little, have a little more fun the next time he sings with his grandkids, whatever it is. So um, I think just go into it with an open mind, find a teacher who's excited to work with you, who's not daunted uh, by it, and and know that, you know, you might take small steps to begin, um, but you can absolutely learn things about breath and about musicality and phrasing and about lifting the soft palate. There's all kinds of stuff, especially, you know, depending on what style you're singing, you might have a different approach, but totally go for it. Don't be deterred. Lately, my thing is I take it as seriously as the student takes it in terms of a lesson. If they're a very, I, I take their cues. If they're a very serious musician and they want to work on technique or yes, in braille music, there is technique and reading and gliding over the notes or cello technique, or if, if they really want to get into the nitty gritty of a piece, that's really cool for me. But if they're just doing it for fun and they don't want to, it, it's, it's another one of those where you have to know when to, you can have high standards, but you have to, again, meet the student where they're at and so that's where if they take it seriously, great. If they're a little more of, I'm just doing this for fun. And then I tailor the lessons to that mentality as well. Awesome. In, ter okay. in terms of musical exposure, yes, the younger, the better. And listen to a student's cues. Like I originally had my son start cello with a teacher when he was three years old. And after the first few lessons, he just, he clearly wasn't ready. So I waited and five years later, we tried it again and he, he was ready. So like, I would say, don't give up, you know, always have an open mind, be willing to give them a student another chance, but always take their cues. Awesome. Uh, and for our final, you know, thought of the evening, Precious, what are your thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, so I really love what both Wesley and Caitlin have touched on, meeting students where they're at. Um, I think it's important, especially when considering um, when a child should start learning an instrument or start, you know, getting into music. Um, me personally, I was exposed to music since I was super little, whether it was listening to it, having the ability to like feel instruments and see what those were like. Exploration and play are definitely key for, you know, younger children as they grow up, really taking cues on like if they 
actually enjoy this instrument? Are they showing an interest? And then you can kind of go off of that. I mean, there is also um, the developmental aspect where kids don't necessarily have a certain dexterity to either do like woodwinds or strings at a certain age. So, um, you know, it's better to not force that until, you know, unless they show interest because that can actually lead to children not liking music or having a negative outlook on piano lessons or guitar lessons because the teacher didn't um, let them do things that they enjoyed or like help them um, approach it a certain way. And I'm of the belief of not only meeting them where they're at, but also finding what aspect of music and what genre and what things resonate with them so that you can teach them technique and teach them um, music through the their interests, through the things that interest them. Because I think that's how you really can connect the children to music and, you know, just students in general. Um, so like keeping their development in mind, but also keeping their interests in mind and really listening to what they're saying, um, which Leslie touched on. And that was, you know, definitely something that I resonate with too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Precious, for that answer. And thank you to all three of our panelists um, for giving such thoughtful answers. And thank you for everyone who asked questions. Those were some great questions. Um, and I'm really glad um, that you asked. Uh, so that, I think, wraps it up, unless Caitlin has more to add. No, thank you so much, Julia, for your wonderful moderating. And again, if anyone would like to and has not yet connected with the Performing Arts Division, please feel free to reach out. You can always email us, nfbpad at gmail.com. And you can check out our website, nfb-pad.org. So feel free to uh, find us on Facebook as well. We have an email list server. You can continue asking these types of questions about best practices as a blind performer or teacher. And we'd love to have you connect with us. This has been a great episode of Scene Change. I'm Caitlin McIntyre, president of the National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Scene Change. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website at nfb-pad.org. There you'll find links to our social media, membership, and resources for blind performers. Thanks to everyone who makes this show happen. Scene Change is produced by Shane Lowe, Joe Schunemann, Precious Perez, Chris Nussbaum, Sayun Choi, and Aaron Jordan. With music by Ryan Strunk and Tom Page. Remember, you can be the performer you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. We'll see you next time.